section forty four of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lily craik chapter four part twenty perhaps also there may be discovered in the shepherd's calendar some other traces of his studies in experimental versification at this time to which his attention may have been awakened by his friend harvey's lucubrations besides his attempts to imitate the metre of chaucer or piers ploughman the work is at least remarkable for the variety of measures in which it is composed the most spirited of its lyric passages is a panegyric upon elizabeth in the fourth eclogue of which as the work is not much read we may transcribe a few verses it is recited by hobbinall gabriel harvey who on the request of thenot that he would repeat to him one of his friend collins songs framed before his love for rosalind had made him break his pipe replies contented i then will i sing his lay a fair eliza queen of shepherds all which once he made as by a spring he lay and tuned it unto the water's fall see where she sits upon the grassy green o oh, seemly sight he clad in scarlet like a maiden queen and ermine's white upon her head a crimson coronet with damask roses and daffodillies set bay leaves between and primroses green embellish the sweet violet i see calliope speed to the place where my goddess shines and after her the other muses trace with their violines bend they not bay branches which they do bear all for eliza in her hand to wear so sweetly they play and sing all the way that it heaven is to hear lo how finely the graces can it foot to the instrument they dance in deftly and sing in soot in their merriment wants not a fourth grace to make the dance even let that room to my lady be even she shall be a grace to fill the fourth place and reign with the rest in heaven and whither rends this bevy of ladies bright ranged in a row they been all ladies of the lake behight that unto her go chloris that is the chiefest nymph of all of olive branches bears a coronal olives been for peace when wars do surcease such for a princess been principal ye shepherds daughters that dwell on the green high you there apace let none come there but that virgin's beam to adorn her grace and when you come whereas she is in place see that your rudeness do not you disgrace 
bind your fillets fast and gird in your waist for more fineness with a tawdry lace bring hither the pink and purple columbine with gilly flowers bring coronations and sops in wine worn of paramours strow me the ground with daffodown dillies and cowslips in king cups and loved lilies the pretty pants and the chevizance shall match with the fair flower delice now rise up eliza decked as thou art in royal ray and now ye dainty damsels may depart each one her way i fear i have troubled your troops too long let dame eliza thank you for her song and if you come hither when damsons i gather i will part them all you among executed in a firmer and more matured style and though with more regularity of manner yet also with more true boldness and freedom is the admirable prosopopoia as it is designated of the adventures of the fox and the ape or mother hubbard's tale notwithstanding that this too is stated to have been an early production long sithens composed says the author in his dedication of it to the lady compton and monteagle in the raw conceit of my youth perhaps however this was partly said to avert the offence that might be taken at the audacity of the satire it has not much the appearance either in manner or in matter of the production of a very young writer although it may have been written before any part of the fairy queen at least in the matured form of that poem for we can hardly believe that the work spoken of under that name as in hand in fifteen seventy nine was the same the first part of which was not published till eleven years afterwards we should say that mother hubbard's tale represents the middle age of spenser's genius if not of his life the stage in his mental and poetical progress when his relish and power of the energetic had attained perfection but the higher sense of the beautiful had not yet been fully developed such appears to be the natural progress of every mind that is capable of the highest things in both these directions the feeling of force is first awakened or at least is first matured the feeling of beauty is of later growth with even poetical minds of a subordinate class indeed it may sometimes happen that a perception of the beautiful and a faculty of embodying it in words acquire a considerable development without the love and capacity of the energetic having ever shown themselves in any unusual degree such may be said to have been the case with petrarch to quote a remarkable example but the greatest poets have all been complete men with a sense of beauty indeed strong and exquisite and crowning all their other endowments which is what makes them the greatest but also with all other passions and powers correspondingly vigorous and active homer dante chaucer spenser shakespeare milton goethe were all of them manifestly capable of achieving any degree of success in any other field as well as in poetry they were not only poetically 
but in all other respects the most gifted intelligences of their times men of the largest sense of the most penetrating insight of the most general research and information nay even in the most worldly arts and dexterities able to cope with the ablest whenever they chose to throw themselves into that game they may not any of them have attained the highest degree of what is called worldly success some of them may have even been crushed by the force of circumstances or evil days milton may have died in obscurity dante in exile the vision and the faculty divine may have been all the light that cheered all the estate that sustained the old age of homer but no one can suppose that in any of these cases it was want of the requisite skill or talent that denied a different fortune as for spencer we shall certainly much mistake his character if we suppose from the romantic and unworldly strain of much and that doubtless the best and highest of his poetry that he was anything resembling a mere dreamer in the first place the vast extent of his knowledge comprehending all the learning of his age and his voluminous writings sufficiently proved that his days were not spent in idleness then even in the matter of securing a livelihood and a position in the world want of activity or eagerness is a fault of which he can hardly be accused bred for whatever reason to no profession it may be doubted if he had any other course to take in that age upon the whole so little objectionable as the one he adopted the scheme of life with which he set out seems to have been to endeavour first of all to procure for himself by any honourable means the leisure necessary to enable him to cultivate and employ his poetical powers with this view he addressed himself to sydney the chief professed patron of letters in that day when as yet letters really depended to a great extent for encouragement and support upon the patronage of the great hoping through his interest to obtain such a provision as he required from the bounty of the crown in thus seeking to be supported at the public expense and to withdraw a small portion of a fund pretty sure to be otherwise wasted upon worse objects for the modest maintenance of one poet can we say that spencer being what he was was much or at all to blame would it have been wiser or more high-minded or in any sense better for him to have thrown himself like green and nash and the rest of that crew upon the town and like them wasted his fine genius in pamphleteering and blackguardism he knew that he would not eat that public bread without returning to his country what she gave him a hundred and a thousandfold he who must have felt and known well that no man had yet uttered himself in the english tongue so endowed for conferring upon the land the language and the people what all future generations would prize as their best inheritance and what would contribute more than laws or victories or any other glory to maintain the name of england in honour and renown so long as it should be heard of among men but he did not immediately succeed in his object it is probably true as has been commonly stated that burleigh looked with but small regard upon the poet and his claims however he at last contrived to overcome this obstacle 
and eventually as we have seen he obtained from the crown both lands offices and a considerable pension it is not at all likely that circumstanced as he was at the commencement of his career spencer could in any other way have attained so soon to the same comparative affluence that he thus acquired probably the only respect in which he felt much dissatisfied or disappointed was in being obliged to take up his residence in ireland without which it may have been he would have derived little or no benefit from his grant of land mother hubbard's tale must be supposed to have been written before he obtained that grant it is a sharp and shrewd satire upon the common modes of rising in the church and state not at all passionate or declamatory on the contrary pervaded by a spirit of quiet humour which only occasionally gives place to a tone of greater elevation and solemnity but assuredly with all its high-minded and even severe morality evincing in the author anything rather than either ignorance of the world or indifference to the ordinary objects of human ambition no one will rise from his perusal with the notion that spencer was a mere rhyming visionary or singing somnambulist no like every other greatest poet he was an eminently wise man exercised in every field of thought and rich in all knowledge above all in knowledge of mankind the proper study of man in this poem of mother hubbard's tale we still find also both his puritanism and his imitation of chaucer two things which disappear altogether from his later poetry indeed he has written nothing else so much in chaucer's manner and spirit nor have we nearly so true a reflection or rather revival of the chaucerian narrative style at once easy and natural clear and direct firm and economical various and always spirited in any other modern verse we will pass over the description of the brave and honourable courtier intended for sydney which is probably known to most of our readers and the still more famous passage in which the miserable state of a suitor for court favour supposed to be the author's own case at the time is depicted with such indignant force and bitterness of expression what a fullness of matter and driving sleet of words there is in the following description of the moral anarchy wrought by the ape and the fox after the former had stolen the lion's hide and other royal emblems and seated himself on the throne with his companion and instigator for his chief counsellor and minister first to his gate he pointed a strong guard that none might enter but with issue hard then for the safeguard of his personage he did appoint a warlike equipage of foreign beasts not in the forest bred but part by land and part by water fed for tyranny is with strange aid supported then under him all monstrous beasts resorted bred of two kinds as griffins minotaurs crocodiles dragons beavers and centaurs with those himself he strengthened mightily that fear he need no force of enemy then gan he rule and tyrannize at will like as the fox did guide his graceless skill and all wild beasts made vassals of his pleasures and with their spoils 
enlarged his private treasures no care of justice nor no rule of reason no temperance nor no regard of season did thenceforth ever enter in his mind but cruelty the sign of courage kind and stainful pride and wilful arrogance such fellows those whom fortune doth advance but the false fox most kindly played his part for whatsoever mother wit or art could work he put in proof no practice sly no counterpoint of cunning policy no reach no breach that might him profit bring but he the same did to his purpose ring naught suffered he the ape to give or grant but through his hand alone must pass the fiant all offices all leases by him leapt and of them all whatso he liked he kept justice he sold injustice for to buy and for to purchase for his progeny ill might it prosper that ill-gotten was but so he got it little did he pass he fed his cubs with fat of all the soil and with the sweet of others sweating toil he crammed them with crumbs of benefices and filled their mouths with meads of malefices he clothed them with all colours save white and loaded them with lordships and with might so much as they were able well to bear that with the weight their backs nigh broken wear he chaffered chairs in which churchmen were set and breach of laws to privy farm did let no statute so established might be nor ordinance so needful but that he would violate though not with violence yet under colour of the confidence the which the ape reposed in him alone and reckoned him the kingdom's cornerstone and ever when he ought would bring to pass his long experience the platform was and when he ought not pleasing would put by the cloak was care of thrift and husband dry for to increase the common treasure's store but his own treasure he increased more and lifted up his lofty towers thereby that they began to threat the neighbour sky the whiles the prince's palaces fell fast to ruin for what thing can ever last and whilst the other peers for poverty were forced their ancient houses to let lie and their old castles to the ground to fall which their forefathers famous over all had founded for the kingdom's ornament and for their memory's long monument but he no count made of nobility nor the wild beasts whom arms did glorify the realm's chief strength and girland of the crown all these through feigned crimes he thrust adown or made them dwell in darkness of disgrace for none but whom he list might come in place of men of arms he had but small regard but kept them low and straightened very hard for men of learning little he esteemed his wisdom he above their learning deemed as for the rascal commons least he cared for not so common was his bounty shared let god said he if please care for the many i for myself must care before else any so did he good to none to many ill so did he all the kingdom rob and pill yet none durst speak nor none durst of him blame so great he was in grace and rich through gain nay would he any let to have access unto the prince but by his own address for all that else did come were sure to fail 
yet would he further none but for avail for on a time the sheep to whom of yore the fox had promised of friendship store what time the ape the kingdom first did gain came to the court her case thereto complain how that the wolf her mortal enemy had sithen slain her lamb most cruelly and therefore craved to come unto the king to let him know the order of the thing soft goody sheep then said the fox not so unto the king so rash ye may not go he is with greater matter busied than a lamb or the lamb's own mother's head nay certes may i take it well in part that ye my cousin wolf so foully thwart and seek with slander his good name to blot for there was cause else do it he would not therefore surcease good dame and hence depart so went the sheep away with heavy heart so many mo so every one was used that to give largely to the box refused we must add the winding up of the story as a sample of the more descriptive portions of the poem what is going on at last attracts the notice of the powers above now when high jove in whose almighty hand the care of kings and power of empires stand sitting one day within his turret high from whence he views with his black-lidded eye whatso the heaven in his wide vault contains and all that in the deepest earth remains the troubled kingdom of wild beasts beheld whom not their kindly sovereign did weld but an usurping ape with guile suborned had all subversed he stainfully it scorned in his great heart and hardly did refrain but that with thunderbolts he had him slain jove forthwith calls mercury to him and dispatches him to the earth the son of maya soon as he received that word straight with his azure wings he cleaved the liquid clouds and lucid firmament nay stayed till that he came with steep descent unto the place where his prescript did show there stooping like an arrow from a bow he soft arrived on the grassy plain and fairly paced forth with easy pain till that unto the palace nigh he came then gan he to himself new shape to frame and that fair face and that ambrosial hue which wants to deck the god's immortal crew and beautify the shining firmament he doffed unfit for that rude rabblement mercury puts on his hat of invisibility and taking his caduceus in his hand makes a survey of the scene of extortion oppression and lawlessness he sees on all sides more of ill of all kinds than can be told which when he did with loathful eyes behold he would no more endure but came his way and cast to seek the lion where he may that he might work the avengement for his shame on those two caitiffs which had bred him blame and seeking all the forest busily at last he found where sleeping he did lie the wicked weed which there the fox did lay from underneath his head he took away and then him waking forced up to rise the lion looking up gan him of eyes as one late in a trance what had of long become of him for fantasy is strong arise said mercury thou sluggish beast that here lies senseless like the corpse deceased the whilst thy kingdom from thy head is rent and thy throne royal with dishonour blent arise and do thyself redeem from shame and be avenged on those that breed thy blame 
thereat enraged soon he gan upstart grinding his teeth and grating his great heart and rousing up himself for his rough hide he gan to reach but nowhere it espied therewith he gan full terrible to roar and chaffed at that indignity right sore but when his crown and sceptre both he wanted lord how he fumed and swelled and raged and panted and threatened death and thousand deadly dolors to them that had purloined his princely honours with that in haste disrobed as he was he towards his own palace forth did pass and all the way he roared as he went that all the forest with astonishment thereof did tremble and the beast therein fled fast away from that so dreadful din at last he came into his mansion where all the gates he found fast locked anon and many warders round about them stood with that he roared aloud as he were wood that all the palace quaked at the found as if it quite were riven from the ground and all within were dead and heartless left and the ape himself as one whose wits were reft fled here and there and every corner sought to hide himself from his own feared thought but the false fox when he the lion heard fled closely forth straightway of death a third and to the lion came full lonely creeping with fainted face and watery eyne half weeping to excuse his former treason and abusion and turning all into the ape's confusion nathless the royal beast forbore believing but bade him stay at ease till further preving then when he saw no interest to him granted roaring yet louder that all the hearts it daunted upon those gates with force he fiercely flew and rending them in pieces fell he slew those warders strange and all that else he met but the ape still flying he nowhere might get from room to room from beam to beam he fled all breathless and for fear now almost dead yet him at last the lion spied and caught and forth with shame unto his judgment brought then all the beasts he caused assemble be to hear their doom and sad example see the fox first author of that treachery he did on case and then away let fly but the ape's long tail which then he had he quite cut off and both ears paired of their height since which all apes but half their ears have left and of their tails are utterly bereft it would not have been possible to take the apologue of the ape and the fox for any covert representation of the state of the english court or government at the time when this poem appeared or even perhaps to discover the veiled likeness of an existing minister or courtier in any of its delineations but the satire was certainly not without some strokes that were likely enough to be felt by powerful individuals and the entire exposition was not calculated to be agreeable to those at the head of affairs it was probably therefore just as fortunate for spencer that in whatever humour or with whatever view it was written it did not see the light till after he had obtained both his grant of land and his pension the fairy queen was designed by its author to be taken as an allegory a continued allegory or dark conceit as he calls it in his preliminary letter to raleigh expounding his whole intention in the course of this work the allegory was even artificial and involved to an unusual degree for not only was the fairy queen by whom the knights are sent forth upon their adventures to be understood as meaning glory in the general intention but in a more particular sense she was to stand for the most excellent and glorious person of queen elizabeth and some other eminent individual of the day appears in like manner to have been shattered forth in each of the other figures the most interesting allegory that was ever written carries us along chiefly by making us forget that it is an allegory at all the charm of bunyan's pilgrim's progress is that all the persons and all the places in it seem real 
that christian and evangelist and mr worldly wise man and mr greatheart and the giant despair and all the rest are to our apprehension not shadows but beings of flesh and blood and the slew of despond vanity fair doubting castle the valley of humiliation and the enchanted ground all so many actual scenes or localities which we have as we read before us or around us for the moral lessons that are to be got out of the parable it must no doubt be considered in another manner but we speak of the delight it yields as a work of imagination that it is not increased but impaired or destroyed by regarding it as an allegory just as would be the humour of don quixote or the marvels of the arabian nights entertainments by either work being so regarded in the same manner whoever would enjoy the fairy queen as a poem must forget that it is an allegory either single or double either compound or simple nor in truth is it even much of a story neither the personages that move in it nor the adventures they meet with interests us much for that matter the most ordinary novel or a police report in a newspaper may often be much more entertaining one fortunate consequence of all this is that the poem scarcely loses anything by the design of the author never having been completed or its completion at least not having come down to us what we have of it is not injured in any material respect by the want of the rest this spencer himself no doubt felt when he originally gave it to the world in successive portions and it would not have mattered much although of the six books he had published the three last before the three first these peculiarities the absence of an interesting story a concatenation of incidents and the want of human character and passion in the personages that carry on the story such as it is are no defects in the fairy queen on the contrary the poetry is only left there by so much the purer without calling spencer the greatest of poets we may still say that his poetry is the most poetical of all poetry other poets are all of them something else as well as poets and deal in reflection or reasoning or humour or wit almost as largely as in the proper product of the imaginative faculty his strains alone in the fairy queen are poetry all poetry nothing but poetry it is vision unrolled after vision to the sound of endlessly varying music the shaping spirit of imagination considered apart from moral sensibility from intensity of passion on the one hand and grandeur of conception on the other certainly never was possessed in the like degree by any other writer nor has any other evinced a deeper feeling of all forms of the beautiful nor have words ever been made by any other to embody thought with more wonderful art on the one hand invention and fancy in the creation or conception of his thoughts and on the other the most exquisite sense of beauty united with the command over all the resources of language in their vivid and musical expression these are the great distinguishing characteristics of spencer's poetry what of passion is in it lies mostly in the melody of the verse but that is often thrilling and subduing in the highest degree its moral tone also is very captivating a soul of nobleness gentle and tender as the spirit of its own chivalry modulates every cadence End of section 44